Hello, and welcome to the Global Pathways Podcast. I'm your host, Ray Offenheiser. A war of words between the US and China has heated up. President Trump continuously uses the phrase Wuhan virus to cast blame on China for escalating the COVID-19 crisis currently sweeping across the country. Senior administration officials, most notably Secretary of State Pompeo, have made very provocative, bordering on bellicose speeches focusing on Chinese military presence in the South China Sea, theft of US intellectual property, ongoing charges of espionage, human rights abuses of Uyghur people in Western China, and ongoing undermining of civil and political rights in Hong Kong. Journalists are now describing US-China's relations as a new Cold War that risks becoming much hotter. Clearly, escalating tensions between the US and China are not in either country's short or long-term interests. Yet, the dominant narrative from both political parties today is harsh and largely confrontational. Is this narrative consistent with reality? Or is it perhaps important for Americans to look beyond the political posture and take a closer look at U.S.-China relations and imagine an alternative narrative? Our guest today is someone who I hope can help us look beyond the everyday geopolitical jockeying. Dr. Michelle Hawks is a professor of Chinese literature and director of the Liu Institute for Asia and Asian Studies within Notre Dame's Keough School of Global Affairs. He has lived, worked, and conducted research in China for the past 30 years and has published widely on topics related to modern Chinese literature and culture. His ongoing research focuses on the effects of moral censorship on the preservation and digitization of modern Chinese cultural products. Michelle, we're delighted to have you with us today. Thanks, Ray. It's a pleasure to be here. Maybe to launch us into a conversation, I might begin by asking you, how would you characterize the current state of U.S.-Chinese relations and the narrative that we hear so frequently in the U.S. about China? Is this an older, familiar narrative, or is it something quite new? I don't think it's new, uh, Ray. Uh, there's nothing new uh, in terms of the long history of U.S. distrust of China and Chinese people. I mean, that goes all the way back to the Chinese Exclusion Act. It's also not new in, in terms of you know this long history of mistrust of communism. All these things we've, we've seen before, and they've been around for a very long time, But it is new, I think, against the background of U.S.-China relations really since Nixon's ping-pong diplomacy. You know, relations haven't always been super good, but they've been pretty positive ever since uh, China started to open up. So in that sense, I think what we're seeing now is is certainly in in my lifetime is uh, pretty unusual. But perhaps in the current situation, are there perhaps some new factors driving the narrative? Fear of China's expansionist ambitions, misunderstandings or concerns about the aggressive Belt and Road Initiative, or simply the recognition of China as a major economic competitor? For sure. It's, it's, most of it is about the economy. But even that is not new. You know, Chinese policies when it comes to their expansionist ambitions and when it comes to Belt and Road Initiative and all these things, all these policies have not changed since 2016. So it's the U.S. that has changed, right? So the U.S. under the current administration for the last two years or so has chosen to really change the way in which it approaches China, even though China has not significantly changed its policies, which they have been pursuing for almost 10 years now. So does, any, does the current situation and the, and the intensification of this narrative in any way surprise or worry you? Is, should it be an issue of concern for, you know, for the American public? I worry about the language that's being used and about the, the, the stereotypes that 
come from, especially from Secretary Pompeo, but also from other members of the uh, of the administration. And I want to make this very clear. I mean, I'm, I'm not necessarily disagreeing with the policy as such. You know, there are good reasons for being critical of the Chinese government. There are good reasons for seeing it as a as a competitor, both economically and politically and, and strategically. That's not what worries me. What worries me is that you know what's coming out of the uh, the U.S. U.S. side seems to be so badly informed. Uh, it seems to be harking back to age-old anti-communist stereotypes. It seems to be harking back to a kind of Cold War discourse. And, and you know, these stereotypes do not apply to China anymore. And if you use those stereotypes, you're not going to build any support inside China. You're not going to win hearts and minds if you keep talking about the China virus or the Chinese plague, if you keep talking about, you know, China as some sort of country where there's a cruel, ruthless communist dictatorship suppressing all its people who really are longing for the kind of freedom that only the U.S. can offer them. I mean, that that kind of language just really falls on deaf ears in China. And it's, it's I, I worry, that's what I worry about. It's There are better ways of pursuing the kind of policies that the U.S. wants to pursue. Well, clearly, President Xi Jinping looms large today as the president of the PRC. And um, to what degree, perhaps, is this change in the U.S. administration's narrative a reaction to some of his actions or rhetoric or decisions? How does China under Xi feed this current narrative? Is there anything different? So China under Xi is, is a lot more nationalistic, I would say, and a lot more confident in its international affairs. Uh, if you think about how, how Xi Jinping formulates his his own and his country's long-term policy goals, you know, he talks about the, the great revival of the Chinese nation. That's what he wants to, what he, what he feels should be accomplished by the year 2049, which will be the 100th anniversary of the Communist Revolution. So he wants China to be a global power. He wants the Chinese model to be a viable alternative to liberal democracy. And, and he's very clear about that. But like I said, he's wanted all that since he came to power in 2012. And even his predecessor, Hu Jintao, was, was thinking along some of those lines as well. So, so Chinese policies haven't suddenly changed in the past couple of years. It's the U.S. policies that have changed and that are changing and again, I'm not necessarily criticizing those policies, but there, there are certainly good reasons for, for some of them. Uh, my concern is the way in which the policies are being expressed, partly on the basis of racist or at the very least very crude stereotypes about China and about Chinese people. Uh, I think that's uncalled for, it's unnecessary, and it doesn't garner any support for the U.S. cause. So rather than maybe dwell too much on the negative narrative, maybe... I'd like to see if you can help us as Americans to see China as you see it and perhaps help us imagine a different narrative in which the U.S. and China as you know, two superpowers in today's global world might coexist uh, peacefully. So maybe turning to that question, what is it you feel most Americans do not understand or appreciate today about China and its vision and ambitions for the future? What is it we really need to see differently? Let me tell you a story about that. This is something that happened to me recently. I was uh, I was speaking to one of our undergraduate students here at Notre Dame, someone who's uh, majoring in, in Chinese, you know, studying Chinese language, 
And a couple of years ago, he had done a summer course in, in Beijing. So he'd actually spent a whole summer in China. And, you know, because of, and he told me that now, you know, in the current atmosphere, there are sort of new students who are just arriving at Notre Dame who, who talk to him and who hear he's been to China and they say like, oh, what's it like? It must be terrible. And he says, well, no, actually, you know, it was a great time I had there. And the Chinese people I met all seem to be really happy. And, you know, it's a really exciting place and really interesting place and, and really sort of, you know, diverse places as well. And it's, it's just that very basic fact that, you know, China is a big country. It has lots of people. They're not all the same. There, there are differences. There are complexities. There's diversity. And a lot of people are actually really happy living there. And it's, it seems that recently, because of the kind of language that our, our government is using, and that in part is also coming through in the media, that, that American people seem to have sort of lost sight of that very simple fact. That really surprises me. I mean, because there are so many positive people-to-people -people contacts between U.S. people and Chinese people. There's so many U.S. people working in China. There's so many Chinese students, for instance, studying in the U.S. I mean, there's so much that ties us together. And, you know, if you want to think of a more positive narrative, I think look at those people-to-people -people contacts. Look at what's actually happening on the ground between individuals, between groups. And then you get a, you get a very different narrative. If I may sort of put in a comparison that probably betrays my age, you know, the Chinese are not the Borg from Star Trek. Uh, they're not some sort of collectively thinking, dangerous entity. I mean, they're, they're not like that at all. But as we know from research that's been carried out uh, by you know, a number of people uh, here in the US, Chinese people do largely support their national government. And that's something to bear in mind as well. That the, you know, the narrative that says we have to liberate the poor Chinese people who are being repressed simply doesn't work. I think your story, I think, is a very good illustration of what I think visitors to China often find themselves, I think, as is the case in your story, surprised by the vibrancy and openness that they encounter when they're in the country. Yet I think probably to, to your point, the general impression many Americans have is that China is a place where there is no freedom of any kind. So I, how do you, um, how do most Chinese, from your vantage point, think about freedom or view their government and navigate everyday life? And I was interested that, you know, you in your comment that you said, every, you know, Chinese are generally happy. Help us understand that perspective on China from the, you know, from a Chinese citizen's perspective. Sure. Uh, so the research I was referring to has been done uh, at by scholars at the Ash Center at Harvard, led by Professor Tony Sage, who's also one of my former teachers. And, and they've been sort of doing research on Chinese people's satisfaction with their government since 2003, and it's ongoing. And one of the things they found is that most people are actually happy with the national government, but if they have grievances, it's usually about their local government, which is the exact opposite of the US, you know, where people tend to feel much closer to their local government and often are very critical of the national government. I mean, what other people have said about this, uh, I was reading a book yesterday where also by a, a sort of political scientist who works on China, he said, you know, most Chinese people feel that, you know, they have 90% freedom, maybe not 100%, but the 90% is good enough for them. And they're happy to sort of lead their lives in that way. And, and 
not try to rock the boat. Now, having said all that, of course, there are parts of China, especially right now in Xinjiang, where none of this is the case. Uh, you know, people in Xinjiang, especially the Uyghur people in Xinjiang, are not free, quite the opposite. So what we should be doing is you know, we should focus our critique on what is happening in those places without painting the whole of China as some sort of miserable place where the entire population is constantly being repressed. I mean, that's the challenge. You know, we should pick our fights and we should fight them you know, very clearly and very cleverly and on the basis of actual facts, not on the basis of stereotypes. Well, maybe let me touch on a few issues that maybe speak to that last point. News was made recently of the new social credit system that was implemented by the government that requires that every citizen is somehow scored against certain pre preferred behaviors. I think for most people who are outside of China, this sounds pretty Orwellian. Uh, help us understand, perhaps understand it from the Chinese perspective. Well, if, I'm not sure about the Chinese perspective. But what I can tell you is that a number of U.S. scholars who are very knowledgeable about this so-called social credit system have all come out and criticized the US and the Western media coverage of this. It is simply not true that every citizen in China is being scored against their behaviors. It's not happening, it's not true, it's a myth. Right? So this is one example where the representation of, of a set of policies in China has just gone wrong. It, it, it doesn't always happen that way. but. In this case, it is simply wrong, and, and it's an example of, of how you know, the narratives over here are sometimes based simply on bad knowledge. I'm not talking to the right people. I'm not consulting the scholars who actually do the research on this. You know, if, if, if you are interested, I can uh, give you some, some further links of places where you can go and read about this, but, you know, don't want to perpetuate that myth in any way. Well, maybe similarly along the same lines in terms of reporting, we might turn for a moment to the whole, the Xinjiang case, where the jailing of millions of Uyghurs in Western China, you know, I think has drawn a lot of public attention. And, and I think it probably tends to play into the negative narrative coming from Washington. And how do you, how do you view that complicated situation? Is, is there, for example, a national security justification for such mass arrests? Really, there's no justification whatsoever for what's happening in Xinjiang. And if I criticized our media just now when they write about the social credit system, I have no criticism of them when they write about Xinjiang. They got it exactly right. And they've, you know, our journalists have worked together with scholars and they've, they've exposed what really amounts to a genocide of, of Uyghur people. Right? So, so this is the problem in a nutshell. Right? We need to come up with a perception of China and with an approach towards China that that makes it possible for us to realize that what we're hearing about Xinjiang is true and is really bad, but what we're hearing about the social credit system is not true and is simply not happening. And it's just part of bad counter-propaganda based on anti-communist stereotypes. So if we can make that distinction, if we can approach China and Chinese people with sort of the basic understanding that it's not all the same and not everything fits one single mold and you have to inform yourself, gather knowledge about what the bad things are that you want to criticize and what the good things are that, you know, all that you don't need to touch upon. So I think that contrast between social credit and Xinjiang, you know, is, is really important here. If we are not 
well-informed and not knowledgeable in terms of how we criticize the Chinese government, then it can just brush aside that criticism. So whereas if we're willing to acknowledge that we got it wrong on the social credit system, but we had it absolutely right on Xinjiang, then maybe our critique can be more powerful. One issue I think that's drawn similar attention in the U.S., perhaps over a much longer period of time than even the Uyghur case, is the issue of Tibet, where here in the U.S., I think many have come to see Tibet as kind of a victim of, if I can put it this way, Chinese aggression. But how do the Chinese see the Tibet question? And why is there such an intense interest in incorporating Tibet into greater China? How is that so central to you know, the future of China, rather than seeing it as a, you know, perhaps a benign neighbor on its southern border? I might offer a story on that one as well. You know, before I started doing research on, on what's going on in Chinese uh, culture nowadays, I spent a lot of time doing research on Chinese culture of the 20s and 30s, so before there was a communist government. And I remember once, as, as part of that research, I was, I was looking something up in a Chinese dictionary that was published in 1930 or something like that. And, and I just happened to come across the word Tibet. So I thought, well, hey, let's see how a Chinese dictionary in 1930 defines the word Tibet. And the first thing it said in the definition was, Tibet is a part of China. So, and then, so I think if you ask me, how do Chinese people look at Tibet? They look at Tibet as a part of China. And that perception predates the arrival of the communist government. So... That's another thing I think that's really important to understand. You know, not everything that Chinese people believe that we disagree with is a consequence of them having a communist government. So Chinese people in majority believing that Tibet is part of China is not something that's a view that's been imposed upon them by the communist government. That view was already there. So again, if we apply the Cold War filter we think, oh, bad communist government view we disagree with, it must be the government's fault. I'm afraid when we talk about Tibet that it's not the case. Even if the communist government were to disappear in China now, there were to be a different government. And in fact, many of Chinese dissidents you talk to will not necessarily agree with you on the, uh, or agree with the sort of mainstream US view on Tibet. So even if the, if the nationalist, if the revolution in 49 had not succeeded and we'd had a, a Chiang Kai-shek-led nationalist government, we might still have seen pressure for incorporation by that regime as well, perhaps. Yeah. Yes. So, so basically, so the kind, the imagination of what China should look like is based on what China looked like in the 19th century. So that was the largest amount of territory that China ever controlled was in the the final sort of century of the Qing dynasty, when both Xinjiang and Tibet and all of Mongolia actually were, were part of China at the time. So, and that imagination of what China should look like was inherited by Sun Yat-sen, by Chiang Kai-shek, by Mao Zedong, by all these people. Uh, that's, that's what people think of, what, what Han Chinese, sort of, sort of Han is the majority ethnicity, right? What Han Chinese people think of when they think of China, they, they think of that territory and that understanding predates the communist government. Well, maybe if we take all of these issues, you know, one perspective on this might be, you know, they all might be seen through a human rights lens. And I'm wondering, you know, as you reflect on these and reflect on sort of the kind of global discussion about human rights, 
oftentimes China is seen as sort of not necessarily seeing human rights in quite the same way as, say, Western Western societies, or particularly European and North American societies, would see human rights. Maybe you know, and I wonder if you could just comment on that. Maybe in the context of these issues, how Chinese and the Chinese government sees sort of this global debate on human rights that it surrounds it in many of the international fora that it participates in. I'm no expert when it comes to human rights, but I think what you what you often hear coming out of of China, especially the Chinese government, is that. We are still a country in development, and and you know, for us, the most important human rights you know are the ones that ensure that you know, our people have uh, a basic level of of prosperity, and and that's you know that's how we understand it. Um, there's probably also some suggestion or some idea that that the notion of universal human rights is is something that they would find it difficult to agree with. So what does universal mean? Chinese government representatives might say, well, what you call universal is in fact something based on, on Western ideas and Western values. So you hear that argument. And of course, people will also accuse the US of hypocrisy. That it, you know, it supports some regimes that violate human rights while criticizing others. That U.S. itself does not allow uh, or does not get involved in, in, for instance, the International Human Rights Court attempts to to prosecute human rights violations by U.S. militaries. So it's you know there there are all these aspects in play there. I think in that respect, Chinese leadership has changed. Uh, I remember back in the 90s, early 90s, when I was still living in the Netherlands and and I was uh, the interpreter uh, for the Dutch delegation when the Chinese foreign minister visited. And at that time, when, you know, when human rights came up in discussion, the Chinese side would be sort of very, almost modest, say, yes, we know we have problems with this, and but we're still a development country, we're working on it, right? so give us some time and we'll get better. From what I've heard, uh, I mean, I haven't, been involved in, in such 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 of meetings since then, but what I've heard is that you know ten years later, when a Chinese leader would visit Europe and some a question about human rights would come up, they would just say, "Hey, we didn't come here to get lectured on human rights. We have our own understanding of human rights. We came here to talk about how we can work together, how we can do business together, etc." So please spare us the lecture. So in that sense, the you know, Chinese leadership has changed a lot and has become a lot more confident in the way they deal with these issues. Well, maybe just, you know, I think the human rights issue is one example of, you know, debates that go on in global fora, the multilateral institutions and so forth, where China is, I think that the kind of dialogue you just described, I think, is, is um, one of the things that maybe is of concern to Western diplomats and where this human rights issue may come to the fore. But here, maybe just let me put another sort of issue forward that maybe has, I think, characterizes at least a perception on the part of U.S. administrations about China's engagement in, in sort of international fora. One of the deeper concerns probably, it's, I think it's fair to say, of U.S. leadership is the view that China does not play by the rules of the international system. That, you know, it might be characterized as a norm breaker or a cheater or unreliable or untrustworthy in its international relations. 
And you'll often hear, and I think this comes out very often in the in the case of um, discussions about trade relations and the China's uh, abiding by WTO rules that that it accepted when it was um, chartered into the to the WTO probably um, 20 years ago. Um, but it also, I think, is pertains to sort of the perception of China's you know uh, handling of other treaty obligations as well. What's your take on that kind of perception of of China's Kind of relation, you know, the kind of positioning that the U.S. is trying to, or the kind of perception the U.S. is trying to portray about China's um, the role China plays in the international uh, and multilateral systems. Yeah, so the Chinese government, for sure, as you say, I mean that that comes out in that story I just told. Chinese government and also many of China's leading intellectuals, even the ones that don't necessarily support the government, they they do feel that you know. China should become a global power, and that with being a global power comes the the privilege to sort of set the rules rather than be told to follow them, and also the privilege to sometimes ignore the rules or break them if that's to your advantage. That is the perception of the U.S. Uh, of what the U.S. is doing, especially now. It doesn't always play by the rules. That it's strong enough to tell other people to play by the rules, but itself doesn't always abide by them, doesn't always accept them. So I think that, you know, that perception coming from China is, is based on pragmatic sort of power politics. So, and it's hard to change that perception. Uh, but I think the best thing to do if, if to, to try and give China less reason to believe that not playing by the rules is okay, is for the U.S. to actually itself play by the rules a bit more. So the more responsibly the U.S. behaves in international affairs, the more it can build international coalitions to put pressure on China to do the same. So the way it seems to be going at the moment is that both sides are just trying to sort of be in control of, of, a, of a global system uh, that plays by rules that, uh, that they set, that they define, and that they themselves can choose to ignore from time to time. So, but yeah, you're, you're certainly right in, in saying that Chinese understanding of these things has changed, especially in terms of its leadership and in terms of its uh, leading intellectuals. As I said, so 20 years ago, it was like, oh, we still have a lot to learn. We still have to get better. And, and now it's, well, maybe we just don't accept this system. Maybe we just want to change some of it. American exceptionalism uh, is uh, something I think Americans in general, I think, have taken for granted, but now confronted with the Chinese in some sense playing the same game, I think we're we're finding ourselves on the back foot wondering how to deal with that. And so I think your points are, are quite apt. Maybe just kind of following that line a little bit, one of the issues that's been very much in the media of late has been, is focused on TikTok and other Chinese social media platforms like Huawei and WeChat. They've come under increasing scrutiny and suspicion in the U.S. for engaging in politically suspect activities, invading personal privacy, or as covers for espionage, or at least they've been accused of those things. How do you view the U.S. administration's pushback against these social media platforms? Are they justified, or are they really overreacting? I think some of it is justified. Some of it is an overreaction. Uh, I think it's another example of how things are all looked at the same way without making sort of informed choices or informed distinctions. Huawei, I, I can see why that would be a concern. You know, it's, it's a giant telecommunications company and, and it's not entirely clear what its relationship is or might be to the Chinese government. 
I can see how there are a lot of security aspects there that the U.S. government would would be worried about. Uh, so Huawei, I can I can sort of understand. WeChat, I, I understand some of the concerns, especially when it comes to you know, WeChat being used for financial transactions, for instance. But you know, don't forget that WeChat is also the software of choice for millions and millions of normal Chinese people, including many Chinese Americans keeping in touch with their families back in China. Right? And the reason they prefer WeChat is because it's a software that was actually designed for people who read and write and speak Chinese as opposed to, to WhatsApp and, and various other softwares. So, you know, that, that's something to bear in mind. If you, if you ban WeChat, you're actually inconveniencing many of your own citizens here in the U.S. who communicate with people in China, and you're, you're making these people-to-people contacts more difficult. So I think that's something that should have been considered. And as for TikTok, I mean, I, I can't take the TikTok ban seriously. It's a video sharing app for teenagers. You know, TikTok users themselves have just been flabbergasted by this. It's like, for God's sake, we're just sharing video memes. What on earth could be dangerous about this? It's So it's sort of the same pattern, I'm afraid, Ray. It's like everything is sort of put on the same pile. It's Chinese, it's communist, it's bad, it's scary. Actually, these three things, Huawei, WeChat, TikTok, are very different and they should be looked at differently and treated differently. I think we'd probably be remiss if we didn't focus a little bit on the the whole COVID nineteen case and you know and or the Wuhan virus as President Trump tends to call it you know and as we've seen President Trump has placed the blame for the spreading of COVID nineteen uh, and the pandemic here in the United States you know on China and and on its early handling of the pandemic. How do you view that? How do you view that characterization and um, and how do you see the handling of it handling of the pandemic in China? You know, is what we're hearing accurate in terms of the, the government's ability to kind of get it under control um, to the degree to which it seems to have gotten, it seemed to have succeeded? And what, what is your take on on that whole narrative around that? I just think it's nonsense, Ray. And, and, and I think, you know, I'm not an expert on global health, but as far as I know, every single expert on global health and every single expert on infectious diseases also thinks it's nonsense to to blame China for spreading a virus. Right? It's, it's, I just really don't understand that one. I also think it's, it's, it's not helpful for the US or for President Trump in achieving any of their policy objectives. Uh, people in China were actually pretty critical of, of their own government in the beginning because they didn't re- react quickly enough to the virus and, and at you know, the very beginning there was some attempt to, to uh, suppress uh, information about it and you know there was a lot of criticism even despite all the censorship there was so much happening on social media in China in sort of February March where people were really really critical of the government uh, but now they look at the US they look what's happening at the US this complete sort of inability to get the virus under control and then the president who just goes and blames China for the whole thing it's just you know it doesn't really Make, as I said, win the hearts and minds of the Chinese people in any way. It's it's just a ludicrous accusation. And, and Chinese people look at that and they're aghast. And then they're con- as a consequence, they're less critical of their own government. They're less critical of their own system. And it's it's just not helpful. 
let's try to turn the conversation around a bit and um, and maybe refocus on the U.S. and the and the U.S. and the upcoming election. And let me pose the question this way: If a new administration were to take power in the U.S. tomorrow, how would you advise them to reframe their relations with China? What would um, your best sort of uh, proposition be for creating an alternative narrative for a new administration that would really reset the conversation and perhaps get the U.S. Uh, and China as two superpowers kind of in a different place in terms of how they're relating to one another? Well, I guess my best advice would be to uh, to any sort of administration is to listen to the experts. Uh, I just don't think that the current administration is getting good quality advice. About a month or so ago, there was a congressional hearing where you know one of my fellow academics, Professor Eva Medeiros from Georgetown, who was a, was a great expert on uh, Chinese foreign policy, you know, he gave evidence. And in his evidence, he writes something like, Chinese international policy objectives are actually not that difficult to understand if you can read Chinese. Uh, so, so the fact that, that that point even needs to be made, that you know, our lawmakers and our administration somehow need to be told that, hey, there are people out there in your universities who can actually read Chinese and can help you understand what's going on. That, to me, just speaks volumes, right? So, so whatever the new administration is going to do, I hope they'll rely more on, on experts who are actually in the universities. Uh, doesn't have to be me, it could be anyone, but people like me who know the language, who know the country, who've been around for a while to observe what's going on and who don't have these sort of hard and fast biases uh, based on political ideology. Uh, as for an alternative narrative, I think the narrative of competition is, is fine. Americans love to have competitions. They love to have someone to compete with or something to compete with. So if China is the new competitor on a global scale and that America somehow has to try and beat, I mean, that's, that's, that's probably a narrative that is not going to go away. But I would choose the targets carefully. The number one priority now has to be Xinjiang. What's going on in Xinjiang has to stop. And a lot of people, again, a lot of scholars who, who, who have exposed what's going on in Xinjiang have, have said this, you know, it has to stop, it's terrible. But the most effective way of trying to make it stop is to try and focus on it and criticize it without demonizing the whole of China, demonizing the Chinese government and demonizing the Chinese people. So, and set a better example, you know, the better the example the U.S. sets, the more effective it can be in its narrative. You know, at the risk of stating the obvious, if you're worried about how China is treating its Muslim population, but you yourself domestically are proposing a Muslim ban, then who's going to believe you? Who's going to take you seriously? So get better advice. Uh, and if you want to go for a narrative of competition, make sure that you, you choose your targets and you're informed about, about what you're doing and you set a good example yourself. Maybe kind of building a little bit off the COVID example, I think one of the things we may Americans may have learned from that is how interdependent the U.S. and China are today. I think the COVID crisis and, and our reliance on China for medical supplies, I think, made it really clear. Do you, however, see that interdependence possibly as a potential building block for a more positive narrative and a set of constructive relations? Yes, absolutely. And, and you know, that's what I'm saying. People-to-people -people relations, that's, that's where you have to begin. And there's, 
so many of them, and I'm pretty sure that you know there's so many Americans, American people, and Chinese people who have you know, who have those kind of relationships and who like and respect each other. I mean. I saw that also when I was living and working in the UK. It's, it's actually five years ago this week that uh, Xi Jinping visited Buckingham Palace. And I was outside the palace doing an interview with the BBC and, and I was watching the crowd that was gathered there. And I just saw so many people that seemed like sort of regular British people who were there together with Chinese friends, Chinese neighbors, Chinese fellow students. And there, you know, the atmosphere was just wonderful, and I sort of looked at it and thought, you know, this is, you know, this gives me hope for the future. I mean, we're interconnected at a people-to-people level. Think of all the Chinese students that are studying abroad. That's a lot of people don't realize this, but you know, Xi Jinping is very authoritarian. But the one thing he hasn't tried to to change at all is the development of the private education sector in China. So you have more and more people in China now being educated bilingually, by teachers from all over the world, going abroad to study. I mean, there's a whole generation of young people out there from China who, you know, they're, they're patriotic. They don't necessarily hate their government, but they're, they're at the same time, they're really well informed about the world in general. They've traveled, they've lived in other places, they speak other languages, they have friends from other parts of the world. Right? So, I mean, that's something, you know, don't demonize those people. I mean, those are people you can have really good conversations and discussions with. You know, I remember I had a conversation once with a fellow faculty member at Notre Dame, and, and they asked me about Chinese students on campus, and the question was, well, what are they like? I suppose they're all brainwashed. And I was like, no, they're not. And, you know, they know more about the world than most of their U.S. classmates, and they certainly, certainly know a lot more about the U.S. than U.S. students know about China. So, you know, you see the problem. If, if you believe that Chinese people are brainwashed, then why even bother to talk to them? And, or if you try to talk to them, but you think they're brainwashed and you have to sort of unbrainwash them, then that's also not the way to go about it. I mean, if there's one thing that really annoys Chinese people who live in the West or visit the West is that every conversation they have here with a Western person, they're being asked about censorship, they're being asked about Tibet, they're being asked about everything that their Western conversation partners think they know better and, and they should sort of inform these Chinese people about. And, but the Western conversation partners doesn't necessarily know better, they're not necessarily well informed. And it just becomes infuriating. So, you know, imagine you were to go to China and you're being stopped at every street corner by people asking for your opinion on Donald Trump and assuming that you support Trump and explaining to you very patiently why Trump is, is a bad person or a bad president. It just, at some point, it just becomes really annoying. So, so we need people-to-people relations. We need genuine conversations, genuine discussion, genuine dialogue. And... You know, competition where it is appropriate, criticism where it is appropriate, targeted in the right way and based on good, strong facts and information. One of the things interesting I think a little bit about, and I think most Americans aren't aware of, is probably that that, that the student contingent from China today is probably the largest international student contingent in the United States at present. I think I'm correct about that, but I may be, I, I may not be, but I think I think that's the case in terms of just sheer numbers. 
But I mean, maybe to follow up on that last comment, maybe the simpler question might be, what are Americans in the future going to have to accept about China that is part of coexisting in a complex world with different ideological approaches? What are we going to have to accept about politics, governance, the state and the market that's kind of characteristic of China, but maybe different from our own experience? Uh, if, if people could just accept that China is a big country with a lot of people and that you cannot describe it in terms of a simplistic caricature, then that would already be a big step forward. Uh, I think that's probably the simplest message I, I can give you. Um, the ideological approaches, you know, there, there's going to have to be debate there, there's going to have to be competition there. And Americans certainly don't have to accept Chinese ideological approaches to politics and governments. They, they, they have the right not to accept that. But as much as possible, you know, try to avoid the caricatures and try to, I suppose, try to treat China as an equal, which they're pretty much bound to become very soon anyway, and come up with a better argument. If you believe you have the better system, the better ideology, then come up with a better argument. And bias and caricature does not make a good argument. It might win you an election, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really make a good argument. So maybe maybe flipping that around in a slightly different way is, are there things we can learn from China and, and its explosive growth and development that would actually be beneficial in the U.S.? For example, more recently, you're, you're hearing more about perhaps the fact that the U.S. should give more attention to industrial policy uh, and its approach to improving, you know, sort of its economic competitiveness. Or are there things we can learn from China's approach to infrastructure, where there's been major investments and in transport and, and other uh, systems uh, commercial that support the commercial growth of China, and also its public health system, which we actually saw, I think, um, in full force during the COVID response. So what are the things we might learn from China that perhaps we're not paying attention to? Again, I'm, yeah, I'm no expert on these things, and, and, and there's always the question of how, how does China achieve some of these things, but uh, to what extent, you know, are... are people's uh, liberties being ignored when they're carrying out some of these big projects. But having said all that, I think what I hear from what most impresses people who visit China nowadays is the infrastructure. So, you know, and the, the sheer experience to, you know, to be at a train station in any sort of city in China and to just have you know, 10 or 20 platforms where high-speed trains are, are lining up uh, and you can travel from one city to the next in a few hours, which used to take you know, half a day or a whole day. The ticket prices are affordable. It's, it's Obviously, it's a much cleaner way of traveling than taking a plane. You see it with public transport in cities as well, you know, subway networks, the bus networks. Uh, I think there's, there's something to learn about uh, the way in which China is, through its infrastructure development, is trying to promote uh, less use of cars and less use of planes. Uh, China has uh, has a lot of problems with pollution, but they, you know, they, from what I hear from people who know more about these things than I do, they're actually making a, a serious effort to try and reduce carbon emissions and, and promote clean energy and then uh, they're starting to play a leading role in that globally, especially since the U.S. pulled out of the Paris Climate Accord. So I think that there's something that 
the U.S. can learn from China. Well, nearing the end of our time together, Michelle, I wonder if you might, uh, we can perhaps leave our listeners with one important key takeaway and say, looking around today, what uh, would you want us to see about U.S.-China relations that's maybe hiding in plain sight that may be the basis of building that positive future uh, free of ongoing conflict with China that I think we all probably hope for? Well, I'm a... I'm not Chinese and I'm not American. Right? I'm a non-Chinese, non-American. I study China. I live in the U.S. So I guess I have a bit of a critical distance looking at both countries. Uh, and to be honest, Ray, I mean, what surprises me the most time and again is how similar U.S. people and Chinese people really are. For me as a European, I mean, I can see those similarities. Uh, for instance, the patriotism, right? Americans and Chinese, they just they love their country in a passionate way that you just don't see in Europe. Even the people here in universities, I mean, it, it just strikes me when I talk to people in universities in China or in universities in the US, and, and they're talking about their own country a lot, and they use the word we when talking about their own country. We should do this, we should do that. Uh, I've never had that experience in Europe that in an academic context, I was constantly talking about, you know, the Netherlands or, or even the UK when I was when there. So, and, and even when they're criticizing their own leaders, Americans and Chinese are still using that we, like we should do better. You know, it's, it's very, very patriotic and it's, it's sort of a really sort of this strong sort of love for their country. And if, somehow that shared sense of love for one's country can be a way that be something that Americans and Chinese people have in common as a positive thing and that it doesn't become a tool for identifying each other as an enemy, then maybe there's a way forward. Thank you, Michelle, for that really, really enlightening and rich discussion and conversation. I'm sure we could continue for hours on this topic, but unfortunately, we're out of time for today. I hope our listeners have come away with a different perspective on China, its ambitions, its day-to-day -day reality, and its place in today's global affairs. If you'd like to learn more about Michelle's work and the work of the Liu Institute, visit asia.nd.edu. For more episodes of the Global Pathways podcast, visit pulti.nd.edu backslash Global Pathways podcast, where you can stream and subscribe through a variety of platforms. Thank you for listening. I'm Ray Offenheiser, and I'll see you next time. The Global Pathways Podcast with Ray Offenheiser is produced by the Pulte Institute for Global Development, an integral part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Pulte Institute works to address global poverty and inequality through policy, practice, and partnership and is a catalyst for centers and faculty at Notre Dame to develop interdisciplinary research programs that address today's most pressing global development challenges. Learn more at pulte.nd.edu.